Amen and good morning to y'all. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. For those of you watching online, we'd love for you to follow along with us in your Bibles at home as we continue in week two of our teaching series called Financial Peace, looking at money and possessions and how we can, can find peace um, with our whole financial world. I want to begin this morning uh, with a set of Bible trivia questions for you. And you don't have to answer out loud, uh, but I want to give you some perspective through two questions. Here's the first question for you. You can think about the answer. How many Bible verses are there about faith and prayer? Now, it's notoriously hard to categorize Bible verses sometimes to say, is this really about faith or not? But generally speaking, we've got an estimate, and the estimate is around 500 verses. 500 verses about faith and prayer likely more than you would memorize in a lifetime and certainly 500 verses we could consider about what it means to have trust and confidence in God and to cry out to him in prayer. Here's question number two. How many Bible verses are there about money and possessions? Do you have a number in your mind? There's 500 about prayer and trusting in God. How many do you think? The answer this morning is 2,350. Now, by no means am I trying to put money in possessions and faith in prayer in some kind of conflict here this morning. All important and good things in your life, all important and good things for you as you grow in Jesus. But my point here is very simple. If God saw it fit 2,350 times to put references to money and possessions, your money and your stuff in the Bible, then it would seem to me that this statement is eminently obvious from the scriptures that how you handle your money and possessions matters when it comes to following Jesus. That how you handle your stuff, how you handle your money, your income, your wealth, your salary, how you handle your car and your clothes and your shoes matters when it comes to following Jesus. This morning, I wanna talk about how you handle the money and possessions in your life. I wanna talk about some very mundane, simple, run-of-the-mill things as I talk about some of these things this morning, like budgeting or saving or contentment or debt, you might fall into a trap. And I want to warn you about that trap before this sermon even begins. The trap is that as I start to talk about some of these very simple money things, that you would have the thought occur to you that this doesn't sound very spiritual. That this sounds kind of boring, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, common-sense stuff, and that it's not very spiritual. But before you fall into that trap, I want to remind you, that the God of the universe is not just after the spiritual parts of your life. He wants all of it. He wants all of your life, all of your existence, all of your actions, all of your possessions, all of your money. God wants ownership over all of it. He wants you to confess that he is the true owner. God's not just after your Sunday worship or your Bible study or your prayer life. He wants your entire life. So that as you pay your bills and think about your income, and manage the possessions and items in your household and in your family, God wants all of that to be under the umbrella of his sovereignty and his authority. This morning, as we work through uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'm going to frame this morning's sermon by asking seven money questions that wise people answer. Seven money questions that if you are a single individual in this room or listening online, that you should have answered for your life. If you're married in this room or online, I want you to answer these questions with your spouse. I want you and your family to be on the same page with these seven money questions that wise people take moments to stop and answer on a regular basis. Before we jump into the text, I'll tell you one more thing. 
there's nothing this morning that's gonna blow your mind. (laughs) Nothing this morning that's gonna shock you. Nothing this morning that's brand new kind of thing that'll just be, wow. This morning, we're gonna talk about some things that are common sense. But I love the way Dave Ramsey put it. So he says it this way, that common sense is so rare nowadays. It's like a superpower, okay? (laughs) And, And so for all of us, This morning, as we think about what the scriptures have to teach and what we see, it may seem simple, but when we put these things into practice, it has great effect and fruitfulness in our lives. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 2 for those of you reading along. It says, these are the things that you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels and words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So Paul is writing this letter to his protege, Timothy, and he understands that there is a certain kind of person in this world who has has taken in, who has started to believe, who has started to internalize beliefs about money and beliefs about God. And what we see here in this example is that there are certain individuals who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In other words, they've absorbed the idea that if I become godly, if I follow after Jesus, I will become rich. The point of following after Jesus is to gain money and possessions. They've taken in a wrong idea. They've started to believe some false teaching. And why have they come to believe this false teaching that if you just follow after Jesus, you'll be rich? Two reasons right here in the text. It says they are a people of corrupt mind and they have been robbed of the truth. Like in other words, They've begun to believe things that just aren't true. They started to believe things that are, true, that are untrue. And because they believe things that are untrue, their actions and their lives led them astray. It corrupted them. And here's what I want all of us to be aware of this morning. I think if we're honest and we stop, we want to recognize that every single one of us have believed messages, ideas, beliefs, and worldviews about money from our world I want to mention as often as I can that we in this room or listening online, like all of us, whatever amount of wealth or income we have, you and I live in the richest civilization in the history of mankind, the richest civilization that has ever existed. And so it would be naive of us to think we have not believed or internalized things about money that come in contradiction to what the Bible actually says about money. So what do we want to do this morning? Rather than having a corrupt mind and being robbed of the truth, We want to be a people who think deeply about what God's truth says, what God's word says about money, rather than what our culture and the community around us says. So again, we'll go in verse six. It starts this way. We'll we'll get to our first question. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So in verse six, he's going to say, hey, to my protege, I don't want you to be chasing after money. Here's what I want for you. I want two things. I want godliness. And that one makes sense to us. We all want to be godly. In our language here, we all want to be like the son of God, the incarnate son of God, Jesus, as we live and love like him. Godliness is the obvious one here. But then you'll notice he doesn't say godliness in prayer. He doesn't say godliness in worship services. He doesn't say godliness in knowledge. What does he say? He says godliness and contentment. Contentment. Being okay with the things you have. Being content with the income you have, the money you have, the stuff you have, the possessions you have. Godliness and contentment leads to great gain. And I've asked the question, why put these two words together? 
of all of the words he could have put next to godliness, why put contentment? And I think there's at least three reasons. Reason number one, contentment is evidence of trust in God. When I'm content with what I have, it's expressing to God that I trust what he has given from his sovereign hand is good and right and holy from me. And when I am discontent with my home, discontent with my car or my clothes or my cell phone, when I'm discontent with the things I have in this life, it's me subtly saying to God, you've robbed me. You owe me more. I deserve better. It's me suggesting that somehow God has given me a bad deal. And what I want to be is the type of person who, like the psalmist says, the boundary lines are driven, uh, drawn in pleasant places. I want to be the type of individual who says, God has given me all that he has given me, not more and not less, and I trust him with that. Contentment is evidence of trust in God. Second, contentment is evidence of gratitude to God. You know how contentment begins in your heart and in mine? It begins with the simple recognition every morning that you didn't deserve any of this. God doesn't owe you anything. You are not entitled to anything from him. You don't deserve it from him. You haven't earned it. Everything you have in your life is a gift from God. The clothes on your back right now, the cell phone in your pocket, the house you woke up in, the car you drove over here, every single thing in your life is a gift from God. And when I wake up just going, God, thank you for life and breath and everything you have given to me today, it stirs up gratitude. And gratitude is what we get contentment from. So contentment is evidence of trust in God. It's evidence of gratitude to God. And finally, contentment is evidence of worship of God. Because when I'm content, I'm not obsessing over the things of this world. I'm obsessing over the creator of those things. In other words, to use Paul's language, I'm not obsessing about the created order, but rather the creator who is blessed forever. When I'm in a, a, a space of discontentment, where I just want more and more and more, it creates a desire for the things of this world rather than a desire for God. So what is contentment? Evidence of trust in God, evidence of gratitude to God, evidence of worship of God. Which leads us to our first question out of seven this morning. Here's the question. When will you be content with your clothes, phone, car, and home? Like in other words, when are you finally going to be content with your stuff? See, it is so easy to fall into this trap with especially these four items where we think if we just get one more thing, we'll finally be satisfied, we'll finally be happy. You see a jacket or a pair of shoes that you really like, and there's nothing wrong with getting a jacket or a pair of shoes, but if you start to think, if I get that jacket, I'll finally be happy. You know what'll happen? You'll get the jacket and you'll be happy for about a second. But then you'll realize your jacket doesn't match your shirt, so you need a new shirt, right? And your shirt doesn't match your belt, and your belt doesn't match your pants, and your pants doesn't match your shoes, and by the time you get the whole outfit, you're over the jacket and you want a new one. But this is the cycle. But the cycle is we just think a little more, and we'll be happy. Or I think about this all the time with little gadgets in our pocket, these phones, and I give young people a hard time on this, but maybe some of us have fallen into this trap. You have an unbelievable piece of technology in your pocket in that phone. But here's what happens every couple of years. Like you have a phone on it and it's got three cameras on it as if you ever woke up needing three cameras. <laughs> but someday, you know it's coming and I do too. They're gonna come out with a phone with four cameras. And you're gonna be like, I cannot exist with three cameras anymore. I must have four. Why? Because you have been convinced if I get the phone with four cameras, I will finally be happy. You're like, gladly take my $1,000 for my happiness. And then you don't 
find it. Uh, again, when it comes to our clothes, our phone, we fall into this with cars all the time. We think, I'll just upgrade a little bit. I'll just get a little better, a little nicer. And then after you drive it for a while, it's just not that great. You get a new car, you drive it off the lot, which makes it a used car. And then right, like suddenly you're in this place where like nothing's ever good enough. Or we do this with our homes. We kind of upgrade and we upgrade and we upgrade. And then we remodel and we remodel. And again, nothing wrong with buying a new home or remodeling your home. It's just if you think you're going to remodel your kitchen and that's the end, you'll never remodel a thing again. That's not how it goes. Because then your kitchen doesn't match your living room, which doesn't match your diet, right? Like you just have to keep going. And, and so here's the thing we need to do. We need to just declare at some point it's okay to buy homes and cars and shoes and clothes and phones. But, but let us never fall into the trap of believing if we just had a little more, then we'd finally be happy. Preacher Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. I love this quote. He says, you say, if I had a little more, I should be satisfied. And listen to what he says. He says, you make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Here's the question for us. When are we finally going to be content with what we actually have rather than falling into trap that thinking just a little bit more will make me happy? Verse seven, it says, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So it's so one of the things I love about studying and reading and thinking about and preaching the Bible is that the Bible is deeply rooted in real life. Like there's not in the Bible, the Bible doesn't communicate this message of like, you don't need food, you just need God, right? The Bible assumes you need food and clothes, a place to lay your head, a place to sleep. And the Bible assumes you need the basics in life. Jesus even says this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, your father knows you need all of these things. So the contention of the Bible isn't you don't need anything, but the contention of the Bible is once your basics are met, you're going to be okay. And I was thinking about this verse in relation to a series of studies that came out. Um, they started studying about 10 years ago, maybe 11, in 2010. They started studying the age-old question, can money buy you happiness? And here's what happened in the study. They start studying this question, can money buy you happiness? And they're looking at people all over the world. And here's what they found. At the very lowest ends of the income scale, money did start buying more satisfaction, happiness, contentment. But then they found this odd thing in the graph. It started leveling off at a certain income level. And they started to kind of circle that and try to figure out what happened here. And here's kind of the result of all of these studies. If I could boil them down to one sentence, it's that once our needs are met, our wants will not bring more contentment. Once our needs are met, our wants will not bring more contentment. And there is nothing that brings me more joy than when modern studies finally catch up with what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago. This is exactly what he had in mind. Listen, Paul understands you're going to need some things. You're going to need food. You're going to need clothing. You're going to need the basics. But once your needs are met, your wants, the things you desire, will not bring more contentment. Which leads to the question I want to ask this morning when it comes to needs and wants, this ancient division. Here's the second question. What wants have you justified as a need? What wants, which wants have you justified as a need? Um, this is one of these ones where we just want to assume that this is true for all of us. And we can put the question up there if possible. Okay. All right. Well, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, which wants have we justified as a need? I want to ask this question of each of us because I want each of us to think deeply about the fact that we are so prone to doing this. We are so prone to moving things that are actually wants, just luxuries, things we don't need but are nice in this world, and moving them over into the need category. 
You do it and I do it. And we do it without even thinking about it. And the reason we do it is because you and I have developed a skill over the course of our life. And I'll tell you, I'm really good at this skill and I bet you some of you are too. You have developed a skill when it comes to your finances. And here's the skill. You and I are world-class experts at justifying your financial decisions. Don't you find that in yourself? Every time you want to spend money, you are like a defense lawyer arguing for you. Of all the reasons, it's the right call to make. So so like, take this after church today, uh, we'll end the church service and you'll be hungry for lunchtime. And uh, I'm assuming of almost all of you, you have a fridge full of food at home. And yet some of you will actually have the audacity to say, we need to go out to lunch or we will starve. (laughs) Like, Like nothing wrong with going out to lunch. But let's not like throw this thing that's nice into the need bucket. You need to eat. You don't need to go out. Or or again, when it comes to your shoes or your clothes or your phone, these nice trinkets we have around, you find a way to justify what you actually want and declare it to be a need. We do this with our homes. We want to upgrade something or make it look nice. And again, nothing wrong with that. But let's not pretend like getting like a new marble countertop is a need that we, we just must have or everything will end. Like we want to be really thoughtful about what is actually a want versus a need. I mean, especially as we go into this Christmas season, I feel like the entire marketing apparatus of the world tries you to th- make you think everything is a need. Like I must have this new thing or else Christmas will fall apart. My children will hate me. Like you just drop into this thing. It's not the case. I want you to be very careful this Christmas season, very careful in your life about what is actually a want and what is actually a need and how not to get those two things mixed up. The second question is, what things that are actually wants have you moved into the need category? Here's the next question here. And the next question is verse seven, um, or I'm sorry, in verse nine. It says, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So I want us to look at the word group here. And the word group uh, we're gonna see here are the words temptation and trap. Like in other words, those who wanna get rich, those who operate like the world operates, there's a temptation and a trap laid for them. And because of their foolish and harmful desires, that's going to plunge them into ruin and destruction. Notice that word group there. You see, the assumption of the New Testament is that there are going to be times where financially your worst enemy is you. Now here's what I wanna recognize. Some of you have gone through financial things in your life that was not your fault. It was an externality. It was a job that you got taken away from you. You got fired or you lost the job. Something went south. A medical diagnosis that's cost you financially and dearly. And so I know for some of us, there's things outside of us. But for almost every one of us in this room, when we look honestly through the history of our life, we will see that sometimes there was a temptation and a trap of foolish and harmful desires inside of us that have led us to plunge into ruin and destruction, that we have been our own worst enemy. And this morning I could cover a million different ways that happens, but let me cover at least two that I think are relevant for us this morning. Two temptations and traps, two ways we can plunge ourselves into ruin and destruction. One has to do with budgeting and the other has to do with borrowing. Budgeting and borrowing. Here's question number three. Have you discovered the peace that budgeting brings? Have you discovered the peace that budgeting brings? Maybe the other way to ask this question is, do you do a budget? (laughs) Do you have a plan? Do you sit down each month and think through what it's going to look like in November and December and January? Do you have a plan? 
Again, Dave Ramsey puts it this way. He says, a budget is telling your money where to go rather than wondering where it went. That's what a budget is. It's a plan before the month begins, before the year, before the week, whatever scope you want to do it on. But it's some kind of plan that you put together. And I think for all of us, like the biggest financial anxiety and stress we have in this world is because we don't have a plan. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what things are actually looking like. And if we're married, we're not on the same page with our spouse. A budget, a budget is a gift to us that brings peace. I know for some of you, budget just sounds like this constricting thing that just kind of keeps you in line. But those of us who have done budgets will actually find the exact opposite. A budget brings peace. Four different ways a budget brings peace. Number one, a budget creates peace about how much you spend. So when you budget a certain amount to spend on groceries or eating out or a trip you want to take or gas for your car, and you spend that money, you spend it guiltlessly because you've already planned to spend it. You don't have to be stressed and worried and fearful every time you spend money. It creates peace. A budget creates peace about how much you save. And so for so many of you, you're thinking on your short-term savings or a long-term investment or retirement account, and you're trying to figure out, have we put in enough? Are we doing enough, contributing enough? A budget creates the space for you to look on paper and see, are we meeting the goals that we're trying to meet? It creates peace so you don't constantly feel like you're behind. A budget creates peace about how much you share. We share money. We give it away. We give it to the church, to the poor, to global missions. We give it to others. We give our money away. And what a budget does is it stares you in the face and says, how much of your income are you actually giving away? And then finally, a budget creates peace about how much you have left. How much you have left in your account. I had a buddy years ago who told me toward the end of the month, he does the lucky swipe. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. He says, I walk up to the store. I don't know what's in the account. I hand over my card and I just hope. And I'm like, that's no way to live, to just kind of hope it goes through and not be sure in every moment. Here's what a budget creates, a plan where you're not walking in the constant stress and anxiety. You can have a budget if you have a huge income. You can have a budget if you have a small income. But I think for so many of us, the first step is getting a little more organized, pulling it together and having a plan with your spouse and being on the same page. For some of you, you've done a budget for years and this is just amen, hallelujah, keep going. But for those of you who haven't been, we've created some resources over here at calvarywestlake.org slash financial peace. You can just go to the front page of our website, click through to that. You'll find books, you'll find resources. But one of the links we have is to a page of budgeting downloadable sheets where today you could go home, download that sheet and try to figure out how you can start to put some plans together for your family because budgeting is a tool in your life that brings financial peace. I wanna encourage you to go to that website. If you've not put together a budget, to start doing so now. So I talked about budgeting. I said the other thing that can plunge us into turmoil and ruin is borrowing. Here's question number four. Has your debt become dangerous? Has your debt become dangerous? And here's what I know. When I talk about loans and debt and borrowing, I know that I'm waltzing through a minefield. And the reason I know that is because of a very simple truth that debt is normal in our culture. It's normal to have debt. It's normal to have a mortgage on your home or a payment on your car or a credit card in your pocket. Student loans to go to school, it's normal uh, to have home loans. It's normal, it's normal, it's normal. It's normal that our US national debt is, don't even get me started, like different sermon, uh, but like it's normal, right? Like, Like all of this is so normal to us. And yet here's what I wanna urge you to do when it comes to things that are normal in the world, normal in our culture. Listen, here's the principle. When our culture says this is normal, 
we should be careful. When our culture says this is the normal way to do things, we as the followers of Christ should be careful. So when our culture normalizes vulgarity and harsh language in music and movies, we should not buy into it. We should be careful about it. When our culture normalizes certain kinds of sin or normalizes certain kinds of patterns or activities in this world, we should be careful on it. We should be a people who are constantly careful about the things the world calls normal, and that includes debt. And so I want to talk to you this morning about debt, and there's um, entire sermons or series we could do on debt, and that's not my purpose here this morning. My purpose is not to be your financial advisor. It's not to tell you what you should or shouldn't do for your life or for your business, but it's simply to be your pastor, a shepherd to your heart and to your family. I wanna talk to you for just a moment about debt by saying three things that the Bible does not say about debt. I think the way we could go through this is just to clear some of the misconceptions about the Bible and debt and allow you to wrestle with this. Here's number one, the Bible does not say that debt is sin. It does not say debt is sin. I'm not up here saying that if you have a mortgage on your home or a credit card in your pocket, you are walking in sin. The Bible does not lay that command upon you. Romans chapter 13, eight says, oh, nothing to anyone, but that seems to be more in a relational context than it is in a financial one. Psalm 37, 21 says, the wicked borrows, but does not repay. It doesn't say the wicked is the one who borrows. It says the wicked is the one who borrows, but doesn't pay back on their debt. So again, I just don't believe this is in the category of sin. I believe it's in a different category altogether because the second one is the Bible does not say that debt is good. There is no positive reference to debt in the Bible. There is no reference where the people of God or an individual takes out debt and it's a good celebrated thing. So while it might not be in the category of sin, it is not in the category of a positive good. It's in this middle murky category that none of us like called wisdom. Wisdom where we need to think deeply and carefully about the debt in our life because the Bible, while it does not call it sin, is going to talk about debt as slavery, as a snare, as something to be aware of, something that can take over, something that if we're not careful about can actually bring ruin and destruction into our lives. And sometimes we're gonna be stuck where we have two bad options. Rent in an apartment here in Thousand Oaks forever or take out a mortgage to get a home two tough options, and I've chosen to take a mortgage on my home. I don't believe that was sin, but I do believe that's created risk in my life that wouldn't otherwise be there. Or when you choose to go to school and maybe you take out school loans, uh, again, I'm not prepared to call that sin. I'm just saying that's gonna take out risk that otherwise wouldn't be there. So again, it's not a good thing. It's not a sinful thing. It's this murky middle called wisdom. But here's the final thing I wanna say when it comes to what the Bible doesn't say about debt, and that's that debt is not irrelevant to following Jesus. The reason the authors of the Bible feel a need to talk about debt is because they recognize that debt can have a power over you. Having too much taken out in loans, having too much that you're servicing in debt can actually create problems in your life that not just hit your pocketbook, but hit your soul. Proverbs 22, seven says these powerful words. It says the borrower is slave to the lender. Like in other words, to be in debt is to have a kind of slavery, a kind of bondage, something that if you're not careful can crush your soul and crush out your desire to follow Jesus. When debt becomes overwhelming, it becomes the only thing you work for and think about and work toward. When debt becomes something that you just accumulate and accumulate because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses or show off your house or your car or your possessions, it can be something that suffocates the faith and the life of a Christian. Here's the question for you this morning. Again, as your pastor, not as your financial advisor. The question is this. Has your debt become dangerous? Has it become out of control? Is it becoming a problem that you need to address? 
want to go on this way in verse 10. It says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, here's what you and I know. If I were to make a list of the top 10 misquoted verses in all of the Bible, this would be on the list, right? Because here's what you've heard over and over and over again, that money is the root of all evil. But it doesn't say that, right? It does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, the perception of the Bible when it comes to wealth is not that if you have money, you're evil. The Bible does not call rich people evil. The Bible does not call billionaires evil. The Bible does not call CEOs or business owners or people who make a ton of money and have a ton of business influence does not call them evil. The Bible simply does not lay that on those who have wealth. The Bible's deep concern is not with the money you have. It's whether your money has you. It's whether your money has your heart. The concern is not money, it is the love of money. And whether you are a billionaire and uber rich or or whether you are poorer than you could possibly imagine, both individuals can love money more than they love Jesus. And that's the great concern of the scriptures. The great concern is whether or not you will love money. And so here's the the fifth question I wanna ask this morning. And it concerns this love of money because in the scriptures, the love of money has a word. And that love for money, the word the Bible uses is greed. The question I want to ask, question number five is this. Are you aware of how easy it is to struggle with greed? Are you aware of how easy it is to struggle with greed? Now, here's what I want to emphasize in this question. Are you aware? Like so many of you heard this and you're like, my neighbor needs to hear this sermon, right? (laughs) But, but, But here's the truth. You, listening to the sound of my voice right now, need to be aware of how easy it is to fall into the love of money and fall into greed. It happens so subtly. It happens so quickly. And it happens in more of our hearts, more times than we want to admit. The Lord Jesus himself had so much to say about money because he understood how subtle and dangerous it was. I'll give you two of those verses. Luke 12, 15 says this. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Like, do you notice he doesn't just say, take care and don't be covetous? He has to say, be on your guard. Like, post a security guard outside of your heart because covetousness, greed, the love of money can sneak in if you're not careful. Like, the assumption of Jesus here is that people become greedy, people become lovers of money, people become covetousness, not by choice, but without their consent. It just starts to begin to happen in their hearts. They start to fall into this pit. Again, in Mark chapter four, in the parable of the sower, it says, still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. This phrase right here, the deceitfulness of wealth haunts me because the idea is wealth has the ability to fool me, to trick me. Wealth has the ability to make me think I'm a generous person when I'm actually greedy. Wealth has the ability to make me think that I'm not in love with money when I actually am. Jesus understands deeply that wealth is deceptive and that for almost none of us, when I say, are you aware how easy it is to struggle with greed? Almost none of us were like, yeah, that's me. Like this is the classic tale from pastors, right? We hear all sorts of people come to us with all kinds of sin they're confessing or working through. But still to this day, I've not had someone come up to me and be like, Brian, Pastor Brian, my, my big problem, I struggle with greed. All my money I spend on me, I think about me, I spend it on me, I'm really into me. 
me. You know, like that doesn't happen. And all of us have this struggle to think that we might struggle with greed. And I'll tell you the primary reason that you and I struggle to think, like we don't think we struggle with greed. Here's why. Most people, including you and me, assume they are not rich enough to struggle with greed. (laughs) You think someone else does. You think billionaires struggle with greed. You you think celebrities struggle with greed. You you think people who are CEOs of the companies struggle with greed. And if you're like a CEO of a small to mid-sized business, you're like, no, no, the big time CEOs, they struggle with greed. People with private jets or multiple homes or those people struggle with greed, but not me, couldn't be me. But this is one of the most dangerous assumptions we make. Our struggle with greed is not dependent on our income level. You can be very poor or very rich and struggle with greed. So everyone's thinking, no, I couldn't struggle with greed because that's for someone else. But here's what we want to be. Wise followers of Jesus, wise, thoughtful Christians are going to think this. Wise people assume that greed might be a problem. And then they work from there. You start with the assumption that greed could actually become an issue in your life, that it may have become an issue in your life in the last year or 10 years or 20 years. And then you work from there asking the Holy Spirit to show you if there's any wicked way in you, any greedy or covetous way in you. Be on your guard, Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness, for there is a deceitfulness of wealth that can sneak in. Are you aware of how easy it is for you to struggle with greed? It goes on this way in verse 11. It says, but you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life with which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everyone and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. I want you to notice that Paul is talking to his protege, Timothy, about money and money and possessions and covetousness and all the things we can fall into. And then suddenly here, it's almost like he breaks into a worship song, right? He's suddenly going, king of kings, lord of lord, ruler over all, immortal, unapproachable light, to them be honor and might forever and ever, amen. It's like his heart breaks into a song of praise. And then the very next verse we're gonna look at, he drops back into the money conversation. And I think this is important for us to stop and linger on to remember something. That when I talk about living and loving like Jesus, when it comes to your money, all of this is irrelevant if God is not supreme in your life. All of this is irrelevant if God is not the one you worship and adore as King of kings and Lord of lords of honor and might forever and ever. Amen. The point here is not to give a financial seminar where you start to think about how to get organized in your life. The point is to orient your heart toward the God who brings financial peace. Because when God is ultimate in your life, whatever struggles you're going through, whatever financial tight spot you're in, whatever blessing you're experiencing, all of that falls into place when you can start to make God ultimate rather than money. See, Paul's aware that God and money are the great competitors for your heart. And what Paul wants us to do is to set our hearts and affection on God, the immortal, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. He continues on in verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. Let's pause. Um, every time we read the word rich in the Bible, once again, we need to remember that we live in the wealthiest civilization in the history of the world. 
And it is very easy for us to see a verse like 17, command those who are rich in this present world, and again, to think of your neighbor, to think of someone else who needs to hear this. But this is directed at us. Those of us who live in the wealthiest civilization in the history of the world, command those who are rich in this present age, what, is it, what are we commanded to do? Not to be arrogant or put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with, with everything for our enjoyment. Now, the first part of this verse is totally understandable to me. Command those who are rich to not be arrogant. That's a really good thing for us to remember. Let's not be arrogant. Let's be humble. Let's not put our hope in wealth because that's just going to vanish in a moment. It's so uncertain, but to put our hope in God. But then Paul tags on this line that I think is so interesting and worthy of our consideration this morning. He says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, there's a lot of things we can talk about with money, but maybe one of the things that can be difficult to talk about in the Christian context is this verse, that God actually provides some of the money he gives to us for our enjoyment. Like I'll put it to you this way this morning. There are only three things you can do with money. Here are the only three things you can do with money. You can quibble around the edges, but this is basically it. You can spend it. You can spend it on groceries or a light bill or a nice dinner out or a trip for your family. You can save it. You can put it in an investment for long-term or a short-term savings account, a retirement account, but you can save it for later. Or finally, you can share it. You can give it away to others. You can give it away to friends and neighbors and your church and global missions and give it to the poor. You can spend it, you can save it, you can share it. And here's my experience, and I imagine you've seen the same. There are people who struggle doing all three of these different things. There are some of you who do not share your money at all. Your money is yours. You do not give it away to this church or any church or any missions or any, anything. You don't give it to friends. You just hold on to whatever money you have. You struggle to share it. There are some of you who perhaps admit that you struggle to save it. You spend all of your paycheck on day-to-day -day expenses. You don't create margins so you can save for the future, and you know that's become an issue. But then there are certain people, and this will surprise some of you, who struggle to spend it. And some of you know exactly who you are. Like every time you spend money or want to spend money, you just feel like, oh, you got to just like pry it out of your hand. And I know what this is like. There's times where I just struggle to be like, oh, I don't want to spend because I want to have, you know, like I don't want to spend that money. And so for those of you who fall into that first category, who struggle to spend, like who struggle to give that money, who struggle to let it out of your hand, here's the sixth question. Am I able to enjoy the money God has given me without guilt? Now hear me on this. If you are the spender who does not struggle spending money, this question isn't for you, okay? <laughs> like, like this isn't for you. If you're like the person who's constantly just money flows everywhere, this probably isn't for you. But if you're the individual who just struggles to spend because you feel guilty, like why should I have a nice dinner? Why should I go on a nice trip? Why should I have a nice pair of shoes? And you feel that guilt, just run back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 that says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Like enjoying the money we have is not some sinful, wicked thing you should feel guilty about. It is something that God insists that we would do with what he's given us. Again, of course we're gonna share it. Of course we're gonna give it away. Of course we're gonna be people wise and save. And but, but for some of you, the question you need to wrestle with is are you able to enjoy the good blessings God has given you? Because he has given it to you for your enjoyment, for you to spend, for you to enjoy something nice, and then for the best kind of enjoyment we could possibly have with money. Do you know the most fun you'll ever have with money? It's giving it away. The most fun you will ever have with money is giving it away. 
writing a bigger check than you thought you could give, writing, taking it out in cash and giving it to someone without them knowing it, surprising someone, blessing someone, buying something for someone, giving generously, that is the most fun you will ever have with money. And so whether it's spending it on something nice to actually enjoy guilt-free or to give it away, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, God richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. And I want to free some of you to be able to spend money without the guilt that says I shouldn't be doing this. Here's the final verse and the final question we'll look at, verse 18. It says, command, those, command them, again, the them is us, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This sentence that's up here on the screen right now is a legacy type verse. This sentence is the type of verse that could define the legacy you leave for your children and your children's children. You wanna be the type of person who, who is rich in good deeds, who is doing everything with what God's given to you to bless and encourage and serve and advance the gospel, to be generous and willing to share. Like we've not talked this morning about what it means to just be a generous heart and a generous giver, but this is at the center of what it means to have my money and say, it's not mine, I'm gonna give it away. We'll talk more about that later, but I do want us to see in verse 19, it says that they would lay up treasures for themselves on a firm foundation in, what does it say? The coming age. Like the assumption of this text is that there is coming a day where things will not be like they are anymore, where God will make all things new. So there is this coming age, and to make it a little more personal for you, we'll just state an obvious fact. There is coming a day where you will not be here anymore, where you will take your last breath on earth and step into eternity. And the question for you to wrestle with the question is, what kind of legacy are you leaving for the people who come after you? And the legacy it speaks here is a legacy of good deeds, of a generous heart, and that generosity is toward the work of the Lord, but it is also toward your family and generations to come, generations who perhaps have not even been born yet. This is where I love Proverbs 13, 22. It says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Like a good individual leaves an inheritance and that doesn't mean you're leaving a billion dollar trust fund. Maybe you will, but maybe you're just passing on the good things to the next generation. Here's our seventh and final question this morning. What steps can I take today that will be a blessing for generations to come? The final question I want you to wrestle with is this. What steps can I take today that will be a blessing for generations to come? That'll be a blessing to my children and my children's children and their children, children that have not even been born yet. How can I change my family tree and how can I be a blessing to generations to come? This may sound like an overstatement, like what could you possibly do in one day that would actually impact generations to come? But I don't think it is. Because what impacts generations to come are the small decisions we make today when we step out in faith and obedience. And so for some of you, the answer to this question is that you and your spouse need to get together tonight before you go to bed and say, we're not on the same page and it's time for us to get unified. For some of you, you've not made a budget in years and it's time to sit down and finally make a plan for what you're going to do with your money. For, for some of you, you need to decide to sell something in your life that's weighing you down, that's like saddling you with debt that you can't possibly afford and it's time to get rid of it. Or for others, it's time to hit pause on a big purchase or project that you've been so into and you realize that it's not a need, it's a want and that's okay. Like again, we can make decisions today that actually allow us to be a blessing for generations to come. The compound of those decisions we make, those little ones, can bless children not even born yet. Some of you need to call an advisor and just say, hey, I'm lost in this right now and I need some help. For others of you, it might just be talking to your children. 
I wonder if some of you grew up in a house where money was never talked about. So you grew up and became an adult and you got your first big boy or big girl job and you got your first big paycheck and you had no idea what to do with it. So you just went crazy because no one ever told you about saving or budgeting or spending or wants and needs and contentment. No one ever taught you about money. Maybe for some of you, the biggest generational impact you'll make is speaking to your kids about money having an honest and straightforward and practical conversation that's appropriate for their age, okay? Don't tell the four-year-old about 401k. Like that, we don't need to do that. But we can have a conversation with our kids where we help them understand money so that the power of money doesn't take over in their lives. I wanna close uh, this sermon with a verse um, that some of you will be very familiar with. And it comes down to this question of what are you going to do? What's a step you can take? You'll be familiar with this verse if you know the New Testament well. James chapter one, verse 22 and 23 says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I love this verse. It assumes there are going to be times we hear the word of God speak through the scriptures and through his Holy Spirit. And my assumption this morning is that some of you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, that you're not budgeting or that you are coveting or that you do have things that you're saying are needs that are actually wants, that you are kind of falling into the trap of debt, that there are things you need to change. And the command, the weight, the burden of this verse is that you would not just hear it, that you would not just think about it, that you wouldn't just feel something but that you would take in a step of obedience today, that you would do what God tells you to do. I love the metaphor here. It says it's like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and forgets what he looks like. Like, let me put it to you this way. I want you to imagine I'm getting ready for church this morning. I put on this little button down and as I'm getting ready in the mirror, my collar is kind of popped up goofy like this. Now listen, there might be like a cool look out there. I'm not cool enough to pull this off, okay? But I want you to imagine I'm looking in the mirror and I see, I'm like, oh, my collar looks kind of off right now. Cool, all right, on to church. And then I go downstairs and I see my family and my wife is like, hey, honey, before you leave, um, I just, your collar is kind of messed up. And I said, you know what, I saw it. And I've been thinking about it since I walked downstairs. Off to church. And then I get to church and my colleagues are like, hey, before you go up to preach, you know, you're kind of messed up in the, the collar back there, maybe something. And I say, you know what, I've been thinking about, I may even read a book on collars and how to, how to do that right. But you get the point, right? At some point we need to recognize, I don't get credit for noticing my color is askew, right? I don't get credit for noticing. What do I get credit for? I get credit for actually fixing it, actually doing something with it. And the same is true with spiritual growth. You don't get credit for noticing that there's something you need to change. Spiritual growth happens when you do something. When you do, as it says in James, do what it says when you take a step of obedience. I don't know what your situation is in your family. I don't know what finances look like for you right now. I don't know what it looks like in the midst of this crazy world for your family. But here's what I'm certain of. If you wanna gain this financial peace that Jesus talks about, if you wanna gain this peace of God that we can have in this world where money and finances and covetousness don't own our hearts, it doesn't happen through you thinking about it, reading a book about it, feeling something or hearing a sermon about it. It happens through you taking a step of obedience. That's what I hope you'll do because the peace that God wants to offer in your finances is available. And when you do it, when you take that step, however risky it may feel, however strange it may feel, it will bring you a peace that transcends all understanding. And I know you'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. And thanks once again for the opportunity to open up your word. God, I'm just so aware that when it comes to money, 
it can feel so private, so personal, so um, close to our heart that we can be defensive or angry or perhaps feel shame or guilt about decisions in the past. God, I pray through the power of your gospel, you would just remove all of those feelings, that we would be a humble people who hear what we have to hear and then go do something about it. I pray decisions would be made in families and in marriages and conversations that happen throughout the course of today and this week. I pray that as individuals think about what their next step might be, God, that they would take steps toward financial peace. God, we want to be a people who aren't owned and controlled by money, but rather use money as a tool to service and worship you, God. Help us to be those people. Help us to be servants. Help us to be lovers of you. Help us to be people who know a peace that transcends all understanding. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.